The following conversation is with Clark Roberts. Clark and his wife Carrie run a foundation called Ultimate Vision. Ultimate Vision is about Clark telling his story about becoming blind and overcoming. He talks about trust, about seeking assistance in order to do things. And then he also talks about trying. In the show notes, you'll find his website, his email contact, but also a book that I reference because the book is about mindset. And Carol Dweck is the author of Mindset. And if she were to write this book, having met Clark, she probably would have said, the book should be called Mindset, the Clark Roberts story. Here is Clark Roberts. I first saw you on a, a television clip. And uh, Barry introduced me to that. And uh, it was about you being at the Seahawks Stadium. Mm-hmm. And the story was about you being um, a season ticket holder and uh, attending the game, listening to Steve Rabel, who I think is the best play-by-play oh, absolutely. Play by play guy. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. And, um, and so you're, you attend uh, games and, and uh, you're experiencing the crowd. And not that that story was nothing remarkable besides the idea that you are blind mm-hmm. attending a Seattle Seahawks game. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you've got stories about the game and the crowd and the experience. What is it like to attend the game? Because you know, obviously when you were much younger, you would go to a game to watch the game. Right. So, right. yeah, how did that? How did you end up becoming a Seattle Seahawks fan? Well, first, first of all, um, one of the things that I that I enjoy is I enjoy sports. I enjoy football. I enjoy baseball. I enjoy hockey, and I enjoy horse racing. Those are those are the the four sports that I enjoy spending time and following. And so, when I moved to Seattle in uh, 89. Well, actually before then, but I was living here, but really, really in about 80, somewhere between about 85 to 89, got introduced to the Seahawks and started really following the Seahawks. Um, and like you say, being one who is sight impaired, blind, uh, I still want to go to the game and I don't, go to a lot of the games during the season, mm. but I do follow the game week in, week out, and it's through my good friend Steve Rabel. And Steve Rabel is, in my opinion, one of the top radio commentators in the sport of football. Steve makes you feel like that you are on the field mm. for every single play. Before the game kicks off, he, he's talking to you. If you're really, truly listening to, to the game on, on the radio, uh, through your phone, you know, whatever, whatever device that you're using to actually listen to the game through, he will tell you a little bit about the conditions of the stadium, the conditions of mm. the day. If it's an outdoor stadium, wherever that might be across the country, he's going to tell you what the conditions are like and what the players are going to be experiencing once they take the field. He does a great job mm. yes. as far as letting you know if there's 
change in in the uniforms as far mm. as what what each you know what each team is wearing whether it's their their normal home uniforms or their travel uniforms or all of that and then you know because because he wants you to be able to experience the game through his eyes because yes. for for a radio commentator that's what they do whether you can see or not see he is calling the game in a way so when you hear it that you can understand what is taking place on that field so two years ago i had the opportunity uh through some good friends of mine at, within the seahawks organization they said clark we want to come do a story on what it's like for someone who cannot physically see to still be able to experience the game, especially here mm. in the Seahawks Stadium. I said, sure, I can do that. So I had the opportunity to, to be interviewed, both sitting on uh, the field at Lumen Stadium and also being in the stands, being interviewed, videos for for that. But it was also the fact of, you know, letting people understand that just because you cannot physically see, that you can still experience things such as the Seahawks. Yes. You can still experience baseball. You yeah. can still experience mm. hockey. You can still experience horse riding or really, truly anything as far as what you still want to go do you just have to experience it and do things in a different way so and i think steve rabel i think about him because i remember him as a player so i was four years old when the seahawks first started as a brand new team and uh, i remember i remember because my oldest brother was so excited that we get a franchise to come to Seattle and we have the Seattle Seahawks. And, and so, of course, that was a huge buzz. And with the, the kingdom, yeah, uh, that was, you know, the experience of having, you know, football. And uh, so it's just what a, a cool thing to see. And then, obviously, Rabel's hard on himself. He always claims that he's not that good of a player. And, and I'm thinking... Well, well whether, whether, he, whether he was that good or not as a player... He is and has become one of the greats in the mm. whole sport of broadcasting. Yes. And, you know, he's had multiple people work alongside of him. But, I mean, at the very end of a uh, conversation, and I think it's even stated in the interview that, that uh, was done, is he asked me, he says, is there anything? He says, is there anything that I can do better to make it more enjoyable for you, Clark. And I said, Steve, just keep doing what you're doing mm. because you are allowing someone such as myself and others that I know who cannot physically see themselves, but it doesn't have to be even for those people. But it's really truly for anyone who listens yes. to the game through your calling to experience it. I know of a lot of people when they're not able to go to the game, they turn on their televisions <laughs> and watch the video portion, but they've got Steve Rabel turned on in the background and listening to him. Yes. The only, the only thing that's a challenge at times <laughs> is the fact that there is a 
bit of a delay between radio yes. and TV. And I've gotten in trouble multiple times as I'm listening to the game in my living room and family and friends <laughs> are watching it and they're having everything and I'm call I'm getting excited about things that already happened. They're going, Calm down, Clark. Don't tell us what's <laughs> going on. That's funny. So the one game I want to ask you about, if you happen to remember, and it is the I believe it's the the most iconic NFL run by Marshawn Lynch. Oh yes, it was against the um, it was against the Saints, and and it was like an eighty six yard run, and he ran about a hundred and sixty total yards with twelve people missing him in tackles, mm-hmm. and he scores a touchdown, and mm-hmm. it created a seismic event in Seattle. It was that loud in the stadium. Oh yeah, were you there? I was not there for that game, okay. but I listened to the game. Yeah. But here's the thing about our wonderful stadium, Lumen Field. There are times, even when I've got my headsets on and my hearing aids, because I use two little hearing aids just because of ear issues, there are times, not not even you know so not that type not that situation because I wasn't in the stadium yeah but there are times when our crowd our 12s <laughs> get so noisy that I cannot hear the call of the game if I'm when I'm sitting in the stands oh that's crazy oh yeah <laughs> you you cannot hear what's going on because it gets so crazy noisy wow, but yeah. it's but it's still awesome and wonderful and fantastic to be there and to experience everything that's going on when you're there. Let's go back to when you were younger. Yep. So um, I read that when you were 18 years old, doctors told you that you were going blind Mm -hmm. and would eventually lose your sight. Mm -hmm. And I believe you're like 24, 25 when you became legally blind. Is that well, actually, when I was diagnosed, when I was informed at age eighteen, I at that particular point in time was already would already by doctors classified as being legally blind. Oh, okay, even though I still at that point in time still wore glasses. Okay, but my vision was such that that uh, that I was legally blind by age twenty four. Uh, glasses had no value no nothing mm. um and in, and and to this day even to this day uh 50 years later from when the doctors diagnosed me i have not lost everything i still have this very little itty bitty window of mm. vision that allows me to see light dark shadows outlines and some bright colors but as i tell everybody i have no functional vision because if i try to use my little itty bitty window of vision i'm going to end up getting in in trouble real quick so it's nothing that i can utilize to sit down and you know like look at my computer screen and and know what's happening on the computer screen that's been gone for years so what what is the diagnosis the diagnosis is disease is a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. There is no, uh, there's no cure for it. Mm. 
There's no surgery that they can do for it currently. I mean, there's a whole lot of research that's being done, but there's nothing that can, can be done right now, uh, mainly because the part of the eye that's being affected is, is the retina. And it's not so much the actual retina, which is the last part of the eye, but it's the network that's connected to the back of the retina, which is called the rods and the cones. Yes. Those rods and cones are becoming inoperable, so all the messages cannot be sent to the brain, so the brain can then send out those messages going, uh, you better stop, Clark, otherwise you're going to run into a wall. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's, I mean, there, and like I said, there's a whole lot of, of research and different things that are happening right now, but uh, currently there's nothing that can be done to stop it. The thing with the disease with retinitis pigmentosa is that it can take itself to a certain spot okay. and naturally arrest itself and never go any further. It will not reverse itself, but it can go to a certain spot and then stop. Uh, so the one might not end up living in mm. total, complete darkness 24-7, which I'm very, very thankful for. But still at the same time, not having vision to be able to, you know, jump in my car, go out and drive, you know, or jump on my bike and go ride my bike, and, you know, those types of things. I have to have mm -hmm. others uh, to assist me to be able to go do things. Such as the tandem bike. Such as the tandem yeah. bike. So, uh, so I learned today that you <laughs> did the STP to Seattle to Portland. I've done that 10 times. Wow. And uh, so, and you're going to do it again. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do it. We are going to do it again uh, come next summer. Usually happens about the third weekend in July. For those of you who do not know what the STP is, it is a one-day or two-day, 200-mile bike ride from Seattle, Washington to Portland, Oregon. Uh, and they usually cap it at about 8,000 riders. Hmm. Uh, people come here from all over the United States to ride it. It is a great ride, uh, and I will actually be putting together a team, hopefully of at least 10 people, uh, probably at least one other, maybe two others who are also visually impaired and who will actually also be riding on tandems with us. Uh, but we want to just go take a group of t t you know people, first of all, just to go out and experience the ride because it's a whole lot of fun to be out there on yes. the road. Uh, but it's also letting, letting others and letting people know that letting people know that just because challenges happen, life doesn't stop. Uh, gentleman who came up this year to actually ride with us and some things happened that we were not able to. I met him in 2019, the last time that I actually rode STP and we're at the start line at the University of Washington campus. Mm. He looks over and sees on the back of my, my jersey, it says, blind cyclist. And he's like going, is that real? And if it is, that's rad. Yeah. And we crossed paths with him, you know, two or three times that day and then ended up riding the last uh, second day with him pretty much all the way into Portland. But uh, he's like going, Clark, you inspire me. And he says, I've told, told a lot of my friends about the fact that you're out there riding a bike, and they just kind of go, 
I don't get it. And I'm like going, hey, you know what? There's a whole lot of people that, that call me crazy, and that's fine because you know what? I still want to go out and experience life because here's the thing. You don't get to have any fun or any adventures if you're sitting in your chair in your living mm. room. Yes. Before you started having visual uh, uh, problems, did you know that there was a risk of you going blind? No. I, I, I knew nothing about that. I had no nothing on my radar as far as the fact that I was going to lose my eyesight. Okay. I knew that I did not have the greatest eyes in the world. Mm. But blindness did not cross my brain at all. So when that started happening, my wonderment is, did you go through stages of grief until you got to the point of acceptance? Oh, yeah. And, 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 and here's, here's, here's a lot of what happened, okay? In the beginning, probably in the first two, three years of this whole journey through darkness... I didn't want to let anybody know. I didn't want to let people know because I didn't want them to put this label on me. I did not want them to classify me as a blind person because they see that's what we do in society. We look at somebody who is blind or we look at somebody who's, who's in a wheelchair or we look at somebody who's deaf or has one hand, one arm, and we automatically put a label on them and categorize them as far as what they can and what they cannot do. So then, yeah. and, I, and I didn't want that. Yeah. So when I have opportunities to walk into a school and speak or educational venue or wherever it is that I have the opportunities to, to, to go speak to a group of people, I let them know. I do not look at myself as a blind person. I look at myself as a person first who for whatever reason has broken eyes. Mm. So so it but it took me a while. It took me a while to get to that state of being able to trust myself enough to be vulnerable to mm. put it out there saying, "You know what? This is what's going on." Because first of all, when I did, it started allowing people that I ran around with to understand why I had challenges, especially at night, because I was night blind, uh, and different different types of things. But I mean, I started to be, you know, I started to be um, accepted as this individual who, yes, maybe I needed a little bit of assistance, not always help but assistance to, to do certain things and being the fact that they knew why made it a whole lot easier. So it, so being able to say, hey, I need to put my guard down and ask for assistance. Oh, and, yeah. and then, but being able to have, being able to do that then leads to the opportunity to do things like, Oh, yeah, it, it allows you to be able to do things right. It also causes you to look at things and go, you know what? Okay, so this activity or this event or this whatever it is that, that I wanted to go do, which people kept telling me that you can't, and I said, that's a bunch <laughs> of crock. Please quit telling me that I can't before I've had the opportunity to try. <sighs> 
But sometimes you have to come back and say, okay, I am not able to go ride a normal bike. But I still want to go bike riding. Sure. And, they, and people go, well, you know, when I first was exper- exposed to tandems, I'm like going, wow, that's kind of an interesting thought. Never yeah. even thought about it. And then the first time that I was on one, I had never even ever been on a tandem bike. Yeah. But now it's like going, it's just like, you know, it's just like normal. And that's yeah. what happens. Certain things automatically, if you allow yourself to be vulnerable and trust yourself, it all becomes your norm, my norm. This is just how I do it. I don't even think about a lot of the types of things that I do because it's just what I do every single moment of every single day. But it starts every single moment when I get out of bed and I set my feet on the floor. Trust. First, it's trusting God, but it's also so, it's trusting myself then it's trusting my working guide dog, but it's trusting. And if I don't trust, I'm not going to do anything all day long. That word trust, I think, is powerful. Because, oh, it's, uh, it's huge. So it's, it, it's, it's not only powerful yeah. and huge in personal life. It's huge and big, you know, in, in uh, relationships, mm. whether that's in marriage, whether that's in friendships. Yeah. It's huge and a cornerstone in business Mm. if you don't trust your boss who puts his trust in you to then you being able to trust yourself being able to trust your teammates that you work with being able to trust the customers that you interact with all day long you're not going to be very successful moving forward trust is the cornerstone in almost every aspect of life when you look at it that's I never, I never thought of it like that, and I think that's really a powerful. Again, a powerful image. I I volunteer to I do the vacuuming at the church that I attend, mm-hmm. and so I got this backpack vacuum cleaner, and I'm like, it. I, the first time I did it, it took me about hour and forty five minutes to do the entire church, and then uh, now I got it down to an hour because I, I I know right. how to do it. It's, it's been fun, but. I, um, there's multiple stairwells in this church and, you know, that, that backpack vacuum cleaner and holding the 100 foot cord going down <laughs> the stairs, you know, it's a little awkward, but what happened was is that, uh, I went down a stairwell that I did not turn on the light and all of a sudden the door shut and it's pitch black and I'm sitting there going, let's go back and turn on the light. But then I thought, you know, I'm going to be meeting this guy named Clark. I should, I need to experience this. And I go up to the steps. I was thinking every step I was going to tumble and break my neck. And I was just, I was nervous. And I thought, I know I can do this. But it just made me think I needed to to trust my my senses, trust myself going down this. And when I got to the bottom, it just gave me an appreciation. It it was just one moment, but it was, it, it was, it was kind of, it was a, I appreciated the idea of, you know, not being able to see, but boy, mm-hmm. that was difficult. Mm-hmm. Is there a moment in your life where you said, I, like, the aha button turned on and said, hey, you're going to be fine. 
You're gonna you're you're gonna live a full life. Oh, I think that I think that there's been many, many, many of those aha moments, and and really, truly, it comes back to first, it comes back to trusting, but then secondly, it comes back to to to, to trying, because all of us do not know what we can do what our potential is until some either we first of all try it or someone comes to you and allows you to have that opportunity because they see the potential that you have in yourself to be able to go forward i started speaking in about 1990 uh, a good friend of mine who was a speech and drama teacher at a local high school mm. He says, Clark, he says, I'd like to have you come in and speak to my, my students about living life without one of the senses. I said, yeah, I can come do that for you, Lauren. So I went in and did it. He says, oh, that's great, Clark. He says, how'd you come, ba- come back next semester? Sure, I can do that. Finished up second semester of the school year, and he says, Clark, he says, uh, how about you come back next fall, and I think I can even pay you. And I'm like going, cool. <laughs> I get to come in. Speak to your students, have a whole lot of fun doing that, and you're going to pay me. Not a lot, but you're going to pay me. You're going to put some money in my jeans. I mean, this is pretty awesome. And it wasn't very long after that that my phone started ringing. Other people started asking me to come do the same thing because words started getting passed around. A cousin of my mind of mine that was living down in the San Francisco Bay Area called me up and she was part of the National Speakers Association. She says, Clark, she says, you know people get to travel and get paid good money to go and tell their story. She says, I think that's what you need to be doing. And I'm like going, interesting. You know? So how old were you at this time? I would have been about 30, 35, 36. Okay. Um, you know, but I mean, it was it was still at that point in time trying to figure out what it was that I was going to do, you know, with my life to be able to be able to give back to society. And so since then, I have been speaking in schools, educational venues, businesses, business organizations, sharing with with students the fact that life is a gift. Unwrap it cherish it and share it wherever you go whatever you do and whoever you're with because life really truly is a gift don't throw it away it's a very very valuable gift that we de- and a commodity and that we don't know how long that we get with this gift so use it share it and help others along the way and that's what i get to do every single day is is walking in and assisting students i mean great opportunity i had last week uh, through an organization called the Washington Business Week. And 100 students, University of Puget Sound campus down Tacoma. This one individual came back up to me because what we, what we like to do at the end of, end of the presentation, if there's time, is I like to give them a gift as they give me a gift of kindness. Mm. That gift is that they get to come up, introduce themselves to me by giving me a good firm handshake, looking me in the eye, and then asking me the magical question. May I please pet your dog? And they love it. My dog loves it. I love it because I individually get to meet the people, 
had a young man last week want to come back and talk to me and he came back and shared with me some very very personal things and I'm like going keep doing and being and then he proceeded to tell me the seven main points out of the presentation that I had given to him and he says I am going to be putting these all into place wow and I'm like going attaboy attaboy keep going so he was dialed in he was very dialed in. He has some other challenges in his life, but he's dialed in, doing great, had a phenomenal week. Uh, just, you know, just awesome, awesome story. I think what I love is that your the, the power of you being able to speak in front of groups is it's not just speaking in front of people who may have vision issues, but it's every person. Oh, yeah. Every person can connect with, oh, yeah. with this. And it starts in, in our with with our organization, which is called Ultimate Vision. Uh, we work from preschool students all the way up to seniors, and if if that opportunity comes about, so my wife likes to say we work with we work with people coming out of walkers, going into walkers. <laughs> oh, that is funny. Oh, so and and I think that human spirit, no matter who hears this and no matter where you are in your life this is a powerful message oh yeah and and the interesting thing is especially you know walking into schools teachers will will either say to me or they'll say to my wife going um these students are kind of rowdy you know they're kind of a little little bit rebellious and and my wife wife will go or i'll go i got this because for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the dog, I don't know if it's, if it's the presentation of a, of a blind person sharing with these students, they lock in and they pay attention. So, yeah. That is really cool. And I think what's amazing is, you know, students, I, and I've been around <laughs> thousands of students, and I've seen many people come in and do presentations, and and what's really awesome is that when when that dialed in takes place with a large group like mm-hmm. at a school assembly mm-hmm. the it's, it's really cool to see how everyone gets to hear that same message and then suddenly there's a culture shift and sometimes it lasts for a day <laughs> and other times it becomes part of a theme moving yep. forward yep. as a school as an organization do you have any, um, have you spoken in front of not just a classroom, but entire uh, student body? Uh, I've done some assemblies, uh, high school, uh, college age, but my preference, my true preference is to go in and do smaller classroom presentations mainly because it gets to be really, truly intimate. Yes. Uh, students, then, I always want to make sure that there is time for question and answer mm. because I feel that when students start ans- asking their questions, there are things that they want to know. And it's always interesting dealing with students as far as getting them uh, – opened up or comfortable yes. enough to the point of asking their questions. And, it, and if it's a little bit, uh, 
you know, tough breaking that ice. I've got a couple questions that I bring in that, that gets them talking pretty quickly. And they find out, okay, this guy's okay to ask questions about. And some kids are brutally honest. So oh, do absolutely. Have, do you have a, a favorite question that someone asks that you're like, ah, I've never had that, had well, that question before. <laughs> I, I'll tell you two questions, okay? First time this question happened, I'm like going, oh, but it's caused me to really truly understand as far as a lot of who I am and what I do right now. It was a fourth grade individual. She's towards the back of the classroom and she goes, um, Mr. Roberts, is there anything good that's come out of your sight loss? And I mean, took me off guard mm. for the first little bit because I'm like thinking, okay, that's not exactly what I thought the type of question was going to be asked. But as I thought about it real quickly, I'm going, yes. When I meet people, new people especially, but when I meet people, I am not taking and physically categorizing them, looking at them and going, oh, you're too tall, you're too short, you've got crooked ears, you've got this, this, and this. And I'm like going, I don't want to get to know you. But there's so many people, so many people that nobody ever takes the time to get to know the individual that's inside the skin. Because you look at them and go, mm-mm. Our good friend, Mr. Barry, first time that I met Barry, I didn't know he was in a wheelchair. But does it matter to me was in a wheelchair? No, it doesn't. Because I know the Barry that's in here. Yeah. And there's so many, many other people that, I mean, I could, I could share about it. But, I mean, there's, there, there's people that you never, ever get to know because you are looking at the physical exterior and going, nope, mm. nope. It's fascinating because uh, um, the idea of categorizing people just based on an image, a view of, of them versus getting to know them, hearing, oh, yeah. hearing oh, their yeah. story. Well, my, my, my wife, okay, for, for probably a good month and a half, only interaction that we had was about a minute and a half or two minutes on the telephone. Mm. But I heard this individual smile, mm. smile, because that's what she does when she talks. And that smile radiates from the inside out. When you were younger, were you worried about being able to find a wife? <sighs> I mean, there was, there was times, I think, probably when I was, you know, in high school or that type of thing, you know, wondering if I would ever, you know, ever get married, ever have kids. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's, I think it's just a normal uh, thought process yeah. oh, that, 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 that people go through. <laughs> yes. But I mean, yeah. So how did you meet your wife? I met my wife on a blind date. <laughs> <laughs> and every date since then has been a blind date. <laughs> and my wife will tell you that she thoroughly recommends blind dates. That's awesome. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> when I heard that, I was thinking, because I believe it's in your bio on your website. And, and when I read that, I thought, 
Oh, you guys met on a blind date. That is so funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, we did. But I mean, you know, we, we, you know, we for, like I said, probably about a month and a half. I mean, we'd been having these, these short little conversations because she was the office manager of a local church. I was trying to get a hold of their youth pastor to go in and speak to their youth group. Youth pastors are never ever in their offices. <laughs> and so, you know, she'd answer the phone. We'd have these one and a half, two minute conversations. Uh, she liked what she heard. I kind of liked what her, her, what I heard. But I didn't even know up until probably about a month in that she was even single because mm. she was a single mother. But I mean, uh, you know, it didn't. But it's, at the time, I wasn't looking. I enjoyed my life as a, as it was as far as a bachelor. I was, you know, having fun, going out, uh, speaking, and and doing all the things that I was doing as as a single young man. And uh, you know, God just said, "Hey, your life's a little boring. I think I need to drop <laughs> drop some you know excitement into your life." And He did with a you know a, a beautiful blonde haired, blue eyed woman and a almost nine year old son. So. <laughs> Oh, wow. It got exciting real quick. Yes. <laughs> so uh, faith is one of the things I love about you know doing this podcast is you get to know people, and, and sometimes you like uh, you get to know people and, and their story, but also uh, faith comes up often. So, Absolutely. So when did faith become important to you? Faith, trusting God, came important to me two months before they diagnosed my eye problem. I got uh, in, in December through some situations on the University of Idaho campus, and I realized that I needed to uh, turn my life over to God and let God really truly have every every aspect, every part of my life. And I really truly believe that because of that and because of putting my faith and trust in God, that uh, it became important because when I found out the day that I found out, and probably even during that first year of this whole journey through darkness with, with my eyesight and sight loss, I would have just said, okay, I'm done. and I'm checking out and taking my own life because all that I knew at that point in time about blindness and blind people was that they did not get to have much of a life. They existed in life and did very, very menial types of things. That mindset of mine, which was a fixed mindset from what I knew at that time, needed to be changed and moved into a, a growth mindset of understanding that, yeah, at that point in time, 50 years ago, blind people didn't get to do a whole mm. lot. But now with, with technology and uh, other things that are available, it's pretty much your limit as far as what it is you want to do. Yes, you have to do it differently but if you want to do something bad enough today and it's not illegal or immoral it can be done you know with 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 the technology that we have available today you can do a lot and there's people things that people do and even even when i met my son when he was almost nine we were walking home one day from the bus stop he goes dad he says you're not a normal blind guy are you because, I mean, he'd always ask me, he says, have you done this? I go, yeah. Have you done this? I go, yeah. He goes, okay, let's, let me ask the question this way. 
what haven't you done? <laughs> so what, can you list some of the things that you've done since becoming blind? Okay. Uh, I'm an avid downhill skier. I water ski. Uh, I still, to this day, I don't get to do it very often, but I do go horseback riding. Mm. I've been whitewater rafting. Um, I've jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, skydiving. Uh, I've driven a rally car uh, up at Dirtfish. Was that with Barry? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually, Barry wasn't there the day that I did mine. Okay. But uh, we actually took Barry up there and videoed a another blind individual that we gave the opportunity to get behind the the actually he had the opportunity to go out on a thrill ride he didn't actually get behind the wheel uh but you know a 16 year old that was that's never ever going to get that opportunity yeah um i've had the opportunity to uh snorkel in hawaii um you know, I've skied at a lot of great places such as Aspen and uh, Bachelor Mountain down in Oregon. Uh, I have not been to Whistler, but I've also been to a place called uh, Big White up in Canada. Uh, but I just, you know, I like a lot of things is I like to be outdoors. I mean, I love to go. I don't bet, but I love to go to the horse races. Mm. Uh, I'm very good at working at picking who's going to win but i'm one of those people that i like holding on to my money and yes. don't like walking up to the window and putting it down because usually the few times that i have i'm wrong <laughs> so when the pressure's on yeah you, you make bad choices <laughs> but i mean you know i, I you know uh, uh you know i just i just enjoy i enjoy living life and yeah that know. is cool so when you're downhill skiing how does that work how it works as far as for me to downhill ski yeah i ski just like anybody else does normal same equipment only with a couple of di two different things first of all i wear an orange bib that on the front and the back of it, it says blind skier mm. I then ski with another individual who skis behind me, who becomes my eyes, and he's going to give me verbal information through a little radio communication oh. headset, so I've got a little earbud in my right ear, and he's going to become my eyes. I skied with a gentleman uh, in March in Montana who had never, ever skied with me before, guided for me before. So we're on the top of the mountain. He says, okay, Clark, he says, what do you need from me? I says, Keith, I need two things. I said, first of all, I need you to constantly be talking so that I know that you're behind me and that we still have communication. Mm. Secondly, if I get in a, in a situation or if there's a situation that you don't know how to handle or anything, there's a very, very important word that you need to remember, and that word is stop. stop. <laughs> but other than that, here's what you do. You orientate orient me to where the fall line is tell me we're good to go and we're going to go ski wow. and he did that the very first time on the top of the mountain the first day that we were at lost trail powder mountain over in montana back in march and we skied down a ways and we finally stopped to take a breath and he gives clark he says there's only one thing that that was even more fun above uh skiing with my grandkids mm. he says on the way he says that was awesome 
He says, however, he says, I know that you probably were a fairly decent skier before you lost your eyesight. But he says, he says, you ski amazing. But there again, though, Andrew, yeah. it's trust, and it was trying. Because you see, when the doctors diagnosed my eyesight, my, my sight loss, I thought my skis were gone. Mm. I had been an avid skier for nine years, and I figured, I'm not going to do that anymore. Hadn't told anybody, hadn't talked to anybody about it. My sister, who's about two and a half years younger from me, came home one day from high school, PE class, where they got to go skiing, living in southern Idaho at the time. And she says, Clark, there's an instructor up in Bogus Basin, and he can teach you how to ski with your eyes closed. And I thought my sister was whacked. <laughs> I thought she'd fall and hit her head, and she was whacked. We went to the mountain the next Saturday, stay, and then my sister ambushed me. You want to go meet Jack? I says, no, I don't want to meet Jack. I don't want anything to do with Jack. <laughs> went in and talked to him, and he says, Clark, he says, I can teach you how to ski with your eyes closed if you want to learn. See, it became my responsibility, my, my issue as far as what am I going to do with this information that's now been dumped in my lap. He says, Clark, it's going to take about five private lessons. You pay for the first one, and the next four I will give to you. And I'm like going, okay. And so he taught me. And then a few years later, I gave myself an incredible present where I went and I experienced a program that they have down in Aspen, Colorado, where I got to go ski for a week with a nude guide every single morning. And every single mm. morning, it was a head trip going, okay, Clark, are you going to trust this individual <laughs> today? And if you don't trust this individual today, you're not going to have any fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's trying. Sometimes you have to come back and, and you know, regroup, regear, you know, do things differently. But if you want to do it bad enough, there's probably a way that it can be done. Wow. So what's your next adventure? <laughs> <laughs> My next adventure? Uh, one of them is probably, you know, like we were talking about before we got on the podcast, you know, uh, getting our group of uh, our, our team together of at least 10 people and taking them on the STP. But not only just me getting to go and ride the STP, it's taking others with us, a mm -hmm. couple of other visually impaired blind people. Uh, you know, uh, we do that. We also have a, a fundraising event coming up uh, on the 27th of August where we actually do a Miles of Smiles where we get a bunch of people together. They can walk, they can run, they can ride, they can paddle, they can exercise however they want to. Uh, you know, go getting outdoors, enjoying life, but also just being kind. Mm. Showing kindness, because kindness is something that uh, has kind of gone away in a lot of areas. Mm. But it's, Absolutely. But it's teaching people that it's okay to smile. It's okay to maybe go pick up somebody's garbage or leaves out of their lawn or just whatever it is you choose that you want to do. So, yeah. That's cool. I recommend skiing Whistler, but you got to do it. Uh, during the holidays okay it's beautiful it's just amazing uh with it decorated and uh, the village at mm. night but also uh the skiing is tremendous and i as a kid we did not i did not grow up skiing 
um, you okay. know, we didn't have the money to, to right. do that. But uh, so I'm chaperoning a uh, a young life uh, okay uh, winter camp. Okay, and it's so uh, this one kid goes, Mister Frost, you gotta go ahead and ski with us. And I'm like, I don't know how to ski. He goes, I'll 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 be there with you. So he set me down a you know a difficult you know mountain. I fell multiple times. But then all of a sudden, I started figuring out, and it was it was so much fun. Yeah. So that became my favorite uh, trip. But also, um, skiing was just it is a it is a great experience. Oh yeah, and I'm glad that you're able to connect with someone who uh, taught you how to ski with your eyes shut. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically that's basically how it is. But I mean, really, truly, I mean, skiing, bike riding, uh, all of those types of activities is is first and foremost because I was willing to trust, and I was willing to try, not letting people say you can't, because in the beginning when they said you can't, they said you're going to fall on your face and you're breaking your nose. And a pastor friend of mine one day as I was counseling, I said, Alice, this is what everybody keeps telling me. And he kind of leaned back in his chair and he says, yeah, but how do you know, Clark, that you're going to break your, you know, you're going to fall down, fall down and break your nose if you never, ever try. And that was just one of the, Andrew, that was one of those aha moments. It's yes. like, you know what? You're right. It's kind of like you know when 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 a, when a when a kid learns how to ride a bike. Yeah, you fail once or twice because you don't get all the pedals and the pedal strokes down correctly sure. and everything. But how do you learn? How do you continue? By getting back up, getting back on the bike, and trying and trying again. Have you ever uh, heard uh, the name Carol Dweck? No, I can't say I have. Uh, she wrote a book called Mindset. Okay, and there's this idea of a of a mindset that's a growth or a fixed mindset, and the fixed mindset says, "I'm not smart enough. I can't do math. Uh, the bicycle, I keep on falling over. I'm never going to learn it. I'm never going to, yeah. never going to figure out. I'm going to quit." Yeah, and then that growth mindset says, "Hey, I haven't learned math yet, but with effort." With asking for help, I'm going to learn this. Yep. And with effort, I'm going to figure out how to balance this bicycle yep. as I pedal. And yeah. once I do, I'm going to get it. And so that I love that you've got the, you might have the strongest growth mindset of anyone <laughs> I've, I've ever met. Yeah. But it's a, it's, a, it's a really powerful illustration. Oh, and, absolutely. And the moment you educate kids about what that is, then they start to say, wait a minute, I've seen in my life where I have a fixed mindset and where I need to think of it in terms of a growth mindset. Yeah. So I, I recommend the book. It's called Titles Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I don't, she, I think she was a uh, professor at Stanford. Okay. So I will, I will, I will look the book up. That sounds great. Because but, I, mean, I think you, you, you're the epitome of a growth <laughs> mindset. And, but imagine that the idea that because you, you trust people around you, because you 
ask for assistance to make sure mm -hmm. that you can get things going. Mm -hmm. You lived, you've lived a full life, and, and absolutely, it's not over yet. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, and I mean, I don't know what else is left, but at the same time, I don't. You know, I don't need to know all the answers. I just need to keep moving, keep doing, keep being, keep uh, being in front of people, whether it's students in schools, educational venues, whether it's businesses yes. and business organizations, because talk about growth mindset. There are so many individuals within all different areas and arenas that need to have the proper mindset, who need to be kind, who need to be compassionate, who need to have empathy towards the individuals that they rub shoulders with every single day. Absolutely. So your organization is called Ultimate Vision. Correct. What's the website? The website is ultimate-vision.org. If somebody wants to get a hold of me for any type of speaking opportunities, they can reach me via phone, 425-891-9008. Email is ultimatevision at live.com. I think I love the name, Ultimate Vision. Well, it's the fact that, that yes, my eyes don't work, but God, my Father, gives me true ultimate vision. He's given me a life and I want to take this life which God has given to me anywhere, everywhere that he allows me to do so that I can unwrap it, I can help people to cherish it, I can then share it wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, and whoever I'm with. Clark, that's awesome. Thank you so much for being on this uh, podcast, but also you've got a powerful story. And I, I, I just, when Barry said, you got to meet this guy, <laughs> I thought, okay. And, uh, and I'm glad that uh, we have a mutual friend in common. Oh, I am too. And I think now I can see I've got a new friend in my life. So I Absolutely. appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew, for allowing me to be on your podcast. Yeah. Well, hey, you have a glorious day. You too.